Park. It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedurals, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 47, Romance. We have skipped book 46 because that was the Christmas story and all through the house, but that was our Christmas special from back in December, so you can go back and find that should you want to do it in order. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined, poised by their laptops as usual, by Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. But hopefully, with fingers, toes, ears, eyes crossed, everything crossed, this might be the last time we have to do this online. <laughs> If everything goes the right way with the the easing of lockdown, in theory, this time next month, we, sh- we should be allowed to be in the same space together inside. Amazing. Crikey. Can you imagine? So, yeah. So, in theory, our next episode could well be in person, or we might just decide that we like not seeing each other <laughs> and never see each other ever again. <laughs> so, who knows? But, you know, this is good. Anyway, mm-hmm. progress, progress. So everyone should know how to get hold of us by now. Look for Hark87 Podcast and all the various social media sites or at gmail.com for emails. So do drop us a line, say hello, and let us know you're out there as we get along with the last few months of this show and this series of books. Right, well, 1995, which definitely feels like yesterday to me. I presume the same for you too as well. Mm -hmm. Certainly does. Which would mean the year that we all finished high school before going into sixth form indeed yeah yeah that's right isn't it mad (laughs) it's mad uh right so usual stuff i'll do some uh quick bit of 1995 rundown here not too many things as usual but i did come across the interesting statistic that in 1995 apparently one percent of the uk population had the internet in the home yeah i remember being at college Sixth form college, and it's still been fairly novel then. Yeah, in the computer room, there must be, say, about a dozen computers that had the internet, and you just kind of like sat in front of it thinking, what's on the internet? And <laughs> looking at about one thing and thinking, well, that's, all, that's a bit, that, all a bit useless, isn't it? Yeah, I definitely never encountered the internet at all until uh, getting to uni. Yes, which was a couple of years after yeah. this. And it, but even then, we it wasn't like the primary thing you did, was it? No, no. To make an effort to go and find the computer and, and get onto the internet. Absolutely. And, yeah, strange, strange times. <laughs> anyway, what was happening in 1995? Well, uh, 25th of January 1995, we kicked the year off with um, a Frenchman kicking someone in the face. <laughs> it's it's Manchester United footballer Eric Cantona kung fu kicking someone as he leaves <laughs> as he leaves the field. Oh, he did. Yes, yeah, he got banned for a few months after that. Yeah, and then strangely, sort of re-emerged a few years later as like a sort of cool actor. <laughs> yeah, an enigmatic French actor. Very strange, but. Uh, <laughs> Very, very famous photo of him, Kung Fu. It's like, it's just mad that he's like hovering in air suddenly, kicking someone in the face. Yeah, I think the guy was a total gobshite he was trying to kick as yes. well, so I didn't have much sympathy with him. No, no, I think he was. He, he ran down to deliver some specifically racist abuse to, to Eric Cantona, didn't he? So he got kicked in the face. So Absolutely. Never mind. Uh, let's say uh, 17th of February 1995, something for our Australian friends here. The Australian Prime Minister, Paul Keating, attacks John Howard, who I think becomes Prime Minister in the following year, as 
I just like these quotes. A political blancmange <laughs> and a political chameleon. Oof. What a combination. So multicoloured blancmange. It's a pudding that can... Change colour, depending on the colour of tablecloth or plate. <laughs> hide in any surroundings. <laughs> yeah. Where's me pudding gone? Yeah. So anyway, I've just, I think that's great when they mix... Mixed terms like that. 19th of April, 1995, not so funny. Uh, the Oklahoma bombing happens. Oh, good Lord, yeah. Timothy McVeigh and, and Terry Nichols are doing that. Uh, 22nd of June, 1995, John Major, who was the Prime Minister in Great Britain at the time, resigns as leader of the Conservative Party, not as Prime Minister, because of basically challenges to his leadership over everything going wrong with the economy and stuff. And uh, do you know? Rem- remember who stepped up to challenge him for the leadership? John Redwood. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> who? Yes. In those, it it, it shows you how things. Because as much as they were detested then, John Redwood would be considered of the extreme of that party, and yet now forms the the political middle ground of it, doesn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. it's wild. Like yeah, how how far they've they've shifted in that time yeah yes this leadership challenge happens and john major wins again sort of solidifies his position for a little bit i think he was under the banner of put up or shut up wasn't he (laughs) yes that was his his dramatic phrase put put up or shut up he would have said this sounded a lot less tough um and authoritative uh, coming from john major i'm sure yeah (laughs) indeed but uh, let's jump forward to the 6th of August, 1995, which is when pubs in the UK were first permitted to open all Sunday afternoon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is strange to think in our world of everything almost being open all the time, yeah. you know, apart from global pandemic lockdowns and stuff, uh-huh. that at one point you just couldn't go out anywhere you wanted to at any time because things were shut for early closing or they'd shut all afternoon. Yeah, yeah afternoon opening only started in... Early nineties, maybe. Yeah, and it's, yeah, and then so Sunday afternoon opening follows in uh, ninety five. Twenty fourth of August, nineteen ninety five. Windows ninety five is released. Oof. One of the good versions of Windows. Thirteenth of December, nineteen ninety five, and I, we end this little list on a, on a much more sour note, but relevant to uh, what we're talking about in this book. We have the Brixton riots that happen on the 13th of December, 1995, after a a black man called Wayne Douglas dies in police custody. And yes, of course, the usual stuff happened of, well, he had a heart condition, he had this, that and the other, but the investigation goes forwards and they discovered how he was restrained and things like that. So, you know, essentially nothing ever changes. But it's it's relevant to the world we live in today. It's relevant to the back set of this book that we're going to talk about, which is coming off the back of the last one we had, which ended in a massive uh, race riot. But let's get into a little bit of Ed McBain's 1995, because there's a lot going on. <laughs> so what I do want to direct people to is there's a really good interview. Well, it's, it's quite a short article, but it's, it's really good, called um, If It's Murder, It Must Be McBain. Conducted for the New York Times, uh, dated 30th of April, 1995, by Bill Slocum. And Bill's very active on on Twitter, talking to us about uh, McBain and stuff. So that's worth checking out if people want to know what was going on in some of his little author interviews about the time that Romance came out. I'll post the link for that for everyone. We've had the early 90s with McBain being quite ill off the back of his first heart attack. 
we've also got at this point, he's, he's started to develop a hoarseness in his throat, then it was just meant that he's had to have a biopsy and he's told that he's got these non-cancerous lesions on his throat and he's having a lot of treatment because his voice has changed quite considerably Uh, and he was still doing all his author's tours and interviews and things like that so there's stuff going on in the background and in the next couple of years sadly some of the information i'll be filling in will be a bit more dramatic than just that but it is also at the point where he uh well apparently in january 1995 is when he meets dradishka dimitrievich and the divorce proceedings start from his, his wife, Mary Van. So that's also going on there. But he Gosh. doesn't stop writing books. He writes a short story called Monsters, which I think goes into a mysterious bookshop uh, compilation. There's a book called Criminal Conversation, which I haven't read. That's an Evan Hunter novel, but I've got that. And there's a Matthew Hope book called There Was a Little Girl. Hmm. And on TV... We have got, between 1994 and 1995, just to catch us up from the last year, we have one, two, three episodes of the My Town series, the Japanese series, where they adapt Killer's Choice, King's Ransom, and Like Love. You have the episode of Columbo called Undercover, based on Jigsaw, which, as we've discussed before, generally thought of as one of the worst Columbos ever. (laughs) And we have the awful adaptation of Lightning, as well that comes onto tv on the 19th of march 1995 just before this book comes out which he was not pleased with and also a a thing called fallen angels love and blood which is based on a matt cordell story i think it's just like a series of one-off things that are on tv but they adapt a a matt cordell story and make him into a a boxer rather than a detective i think or something like that so uh, yeah i think it's on youtube i'll have to look it up so you know there's plenty of mcbain things happening and one of those is the book Romance. So, first question is to you two, have you read it before? I, I have indeed, yes. I had not. Ah, right, That's okay. I hadn't either. And it's a very interesting one to read when you've been doing a lot of research into Evan Hunter and Ed McBain because of how densely packed with self-references <laughs> it is. And I'll, I suspect a lot of this will be me saying, ah, this is, mm, yes. I, I assumed there was going to be a lot of that. I uh, obviously haven't done that research, but there were definitely a lot of things where I thought, this is totally something that's actually from his life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, Steve-O, could you give us a little summary about what happens in this book? Uh, well, well, I can, yes. And it's uh, very multi-layered, I would say, and mm. stories within stories. So it's a novel called Romance about play called romance that involves actors and their understudies playing characters called actors and understudies who aren't the understudies or the actors in the novel but characters in the play within the novel so it can get quite complicated at times this book because you don't know who on earth they're on about when they're on about the understudy or the actor but yes what first kind of happens is a well actually no crime is committed for quite some time in this book am i right in thinking that well no no fatality yes so but even the actual first crime is not right at the beginning um and it's it's it is a stabbing in an alleyway of the lead actress in this play which everyone seems to agree is a 
fairly crap play, don't they? Well, everyone <laughs> thinks that, apart from the guy who's written it, who thinks it's the greatest thing ever. <laughs> the director's trying to change this play, and the, uh, the the writer is having none of it, and all the actors think that they're all better than all the other actors in it, and are all vying for position so there's a lot of commentary on the play business so yes the the uh, the lady in the lead role is stabbed in a an alleyway and you very quickly after that well you suspect that it's something a bit weird about it and you very quickly find out after that from the characters themselves that it's uh, an inside job in order to create a bit of a hoo-ha about this play and gain mm. a bit of um, publicity. She has got her boyfriend slash agent to stab her. So presumably stabbed her in a bit that you knew wasn't going to cause any damage. If anybody wants me to do that, I don't think I'd be very good because no. how, how on earth do you do that? So. Um, <laughs> So, so far, so strange, and and they kind of quickly get onto this, really, because the guy um, who did the stabbing is a total imbecile and (laughs) provides a ridiculously, very quickly seen-through alibi, doesn't he? But before anything can really happen and that resolved, she then gets stabbed 22 times in presumably the same alleyway, I think, is it? That's back in her apartment. Oh, it's in, a, in an apartment, oh, yeah. yes, yes, because she, she knocks the door and in one of those, oh, it's you, after she opens the door. So you know that she knows the person who it is. And obviously the prime suspect is the boyfriend, but he claims not to have done it. And so therefore you end up with a peculiar situation here where the district attorney is quite happy to prosecute, essentially, uh, but Steve Carella just doesn't he? Does, he doesn't think it feels right. And uh, to just to speed things along a little bit, <laughs> so we can actually start discussing it, we end up with more people in the play, sort of act cross purposes against each other. It seems seeming to be nice, and someone coming out of a window in a block of flats. Yes, uh, yes, yes. And if I suppose if you give that away, then that's kind of start the, the beginning of the end when uh, the um, uh, stage manager falls out the window. Whilst asleep, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, and so, and the other thing to say is one of the main threads throughout this. This is, and this is interesting because the last book ends with Bert Kling ringing up Sharon Cook to say, "Will you go on a date with me?" This book opens with the exact same scene, which he's never done that before. Literally, like a recap. Yeah, word yeah. by word recap at the start. Yeah, so it's the beginning of their uh, courtship, isn't it? So that's another type of romance that's that's in there. Yeah, so as as these entries go, sometimes you know we're, we we sit here saying there's a lot going on in this one. The, the, the plot's very involved and actually quite complex, really. But yeah, in terms of story threads, there's essentially just the two, yeah. really, isn't there? Yeah. So, as a first-time reader, Morgan, how did you find it, generally? I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I, I, I definitely appreciated the relative simplicity of structure compared to um, compared to the previous entry in the series, just because I, I did feel like that was a bit of a shambles. Um, yeah. I enjoyed the all the stuff sort of within the within the theatre which seemed very much like it was reflecting um, Bain's own experiences of the theatre, mm-hmm. possibly kind of 
satirizing people he's he's specifically kind of met during different productions because i know he's never had a particularly happy time with trying to get his uh, his plays sort of to, to be produced successfully yeah. and I, I felt like maybe also kind of being a bit self-deprecating as well um and it's quite interesting the whole sort of multi-layered thing of of events imitating the play and just that that constant sort of parallels between the different uh, between the real world and what's going on on the stage so i did did enjoy all of that yeah kind of back to basics in some respects but um i thought all, all that side of things was was something a little bit different too so quite enjoyable yeah it's it's a funny one i think if it, if the plot had been any more complicated than it is you'd have been totally lost because <laughs> like steve says you've got characters playing characters called understudy <laughs> but you've also got an understudy who is a character in the book. Yes. But, yeah. I, th- I think uh, I'm, I'm very glad that Steve was able to explain it as well as he could have done. Cause I don't think I could have got my head around it in order to actually form coherent sentences. But uh, yeah, it does get a little bit baffling. Yeah. I think he, he, yeah, he clearly has a lot of fun with all the <laughs> internal talk of the, you know, all the theater people, the writer and the director and all that. Yeah. Uh, there's some good passages about where he's they just they're just going on and on all these actor and the writer type they go and ask them questions and they end up just talking endlessly don't they about just whatever they want to talk about you know the um he's going on about how like non-fiction the like non-fiction writers are the worst and then fiction and he's written fiction that were about police uh, well not procedurals they're not mysteries yeah. and uh, but then he goes on to say but the highest form of art is uh, the theater writer you know and blah 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 so yeah he can <laughs> kind of um, uh, you could you could see they were McBain's kind of uh, own thoughts or kind of a parody on on various other people he's come across in his career but um, yeah <laughs> yeah I think that's a good point for me to then let's, let's try and nail down all the references cool. so one interesting thing is that about the time this is being written, he is, I don't think he's just started work on it, but he is about to begin working on what he thinks is going to be a big stage musical that ends up being called The Night They Raided Minsky's. But he's done lots of attempts at plays of different sorts before. And one thing that McBain has said, Evan Hunter has said in his life, is he really does believe that musical comedy on the stage is the highest form of art. Mm. He genuinely believes it, which is why he's clearly so frustrated through his lifetime, having failed to really get this to work. And so we have references in this book to, well, I'll come back to the film references because they're in there as well. And I know I've said some of these things before, but it seems like a good opportunity to just lay out um, McBain's theatre history such as it is. So the first reference is to a play called The Conjurer. It was due to open in 1969. The, the Conjurer kept getting rescheduled. It was supposed to be played at the University of Michigan and it got rescheduled and it, it had a cast which included... Uh, James Whitmore and Audra Lindley, who apparently became quite familiar in Three's Company and The Ropers, hmm. which is the same TV program where Norman Fell, who played Maya Meyer in the 87th Precinct series, became famous. But that play, The Conjurer from 1969, was about a playwright struggling to finish a play. <laughs> well, let's go through it. Let me just lay it out for you. So, produced plays by Evan Hunter, The Easter Man is produced in Birmingham Repertory Theatre in the UK in June of 1964. It transfers to 
back to America in 1965 under the name A Race of Hairy Men. Neither versions of it get particularly good reviews. The Conjurer eventually turns up for, I think, a very, very, very short run in 1969. A play called Stalemate, which was a musical, turns up in 1975. Very, very short run. Reproduced in the Roundabout Theatre in New York. The next thing that's produced that has, it has anything to do with is a thing called The Night They Raided Minsky's, as I mentioned before, right. except that it's not what he's done. His book is totally rewritten by the time this, this appears. So it was due to be presented in the year 2000. It eventually turns up in the year 2009. Uh-huh. And the other thing was in 2007, so two years after he dies, we have a play called Final Curtain, which is the only time he actually got a murder mystery play onto stage. And it happened after he died. So, oh. But then if you were to go through the rest of his thing, the unproduced plays list, as far as the, I can find out, he tried to put the Blackboard Jungle on the stage. That didn't work. He tried to get King's Ransom on the stage before it was an 87th Precinct book. Oh. That didn't work. He did a thing called the Kappa Caper. That didn't work. He, that, they were all about 1955. did uh, an adaptation of See Him Die, which becomes See Them Die, the book, in 1956. That doesn't get on stage. He does a thing just called caper which was his first attempt at a murder mystery musical and that gets quite away in production and then doesn't get on stage <laughs> and there's also references in his um, archives to a play of killer's wedge a play of the motel a play called the other side a play called steps which is a curtain raiser and three one-act plays and a play called the boomers in 1966 so his archive is littered with this material <laughs> So little of it got on stage, and that which did get on stage didn't stay there long. You can see why he's <laughs> he's ended up writing this. So I have a feeling that possibly he'd been contacted about writing something again when he was doing this, and it's he's just sort of reflecting. Perhaps he was trying to show how impossible it is to get anything on the on the <laughs> on the stage. Although in this book, it's because disaster uh, keeps hitting all the uh, the cast. But no, uh, <laughs> oh. yeah. It's it's a funny one. I mean, as as far as books go, of course, there's re- there's references to the films as well. There's a reference to the film Walk Proud, which yes. was a s- screenplay that uh, actually turned into a film. That was a troubled production itself, you know, because it meant talking about Chicano uh, street gangs, company producing it were a bit, oh, I don't know, don't know we should be doing this stuff about gangs, but it opened eventually. And then there was big complaints about mm. white actors playing Chicano parts, which is reflected in some of the discussion in this book so he's got a character in here this is a good one he's got a character in here who plays a cop all the time it's always gets cast as a cop and he says that he played a cop in a film called fuzz and a cop in a film called without apparent motive and a film a cop in a film called blood relatives and a cop in a film called high and low you know these are films made in it's completely impossible, but it's, again, all adaptations of 87 Precinct things. Yeah, but, yeah. Another kind of scene where it's all kind of all fairly strange is when that cop meets uh, Ollie Weeks and Ollie Weeks tells him how he would improve the dialogue in the play <laughs> of the interrogation. And so then, so you've got, you've had a scene with the interrogation in it, in the play, in the book, then you've got in the book Fat Ollie telling him how that scene could be improved. And then you've got the ad lib rehearsal of that actor 
then verbatim <laughs> repeating in the play the scene from the book that Fat Ollie has just told him like a couple of chapters before. So, yeah, it's quite clever stuff, really, because it, <laughs> yeah. it's just yeah, a bit nuts, Do we think really. this is where Fat Ollie catches the fiction bug? Quite you know? possibly, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, because as soon as that happened, I thought, doesn't Fat Ollie start writing the, a, a play or a book at some point? And it's what prompted me. He does, doesn't he? He does. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, if we go through and look at all the references in here, you've got you've got a few swipes at Hill Street Blues because of he's got course. television actors. In. <laughs> There's even some a point at which someone misremembers Corella's name as Ferrillo, which is <laughs> the the character from Hill Street Blues. Uh, but you've even got calls back to Roger Haviland. Yeah. So a long way back, you get this call back. But you also have the song "Kiss" from the book "Kiss." Oh yeah. Crops up loads of time again. I really, uh, I really like that scene with Fat Ollie though when he goes to see that thing and he's just like I nearly blew your head off and he, he makes him give him loads of beer because he's like clearly quite shaken up that he's nearly <laughs> shot this guy because he's this actor in order to be in his role just has a, a replica gun attached to him in a holster all the time it's just it's such a funny scene that and then he's going on about and he was like well what's her name? And he's like, well, nobody has names in this play. And Fat Ollie's like, you what? They don't have names. Everyone's got a name. That's impossible. <laughs> it's, it's, it's lots and lots of um, legwork for the cops in this, isn't it? It's lots of yeah. going and interviewing. Going yeah, somewhere else and interviewing. but I think for the first time in a while, he just uses that as a good means of getting beneath the skin of a lot of characters, not necessarily for you know, plot development. There's the return of the amusing, eccentric person as well, yes. isn't there? The guy with the ridiculous name who owns one of the pharmacies. <laughs> Is he called Mr. Question or something? He's got a really daft name. <laughs> Quest, Quested, is he called? He's got Quested, a, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so we've not had a character like that for ages. It was very disappointed to discover that he hasn't sold the lethal drugs to someone. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, because you've already you've, they've already been to about three other pharmacies or whatnot in the book where they just purposefully unhelpful, and then they get to this guy and he's really very helpful, but ultimately can't help them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one thing I wanted to ask Morgan. So Morgan and I have both, at certain points in our lives, been on the stage or done <laughs> stuff with like theatre schools and things like that haven't we indeed did you recognize even from that sort of um experience some of the character types in this book because i definitely did yeah absolutely yeah it rang quite quite uh, true definitely even from just sort of local amateur things or or yeah as you say sort of drama types in in school you, you can totally see it yeah <laughs> totally yeah because there's always a sort of weird hierarchy of of who seems to be getting the good parts and who's a bit jealous about it. And yep. yeah, it's, it, it's definitely experience that McBain has had with people of, you know, stage managers, actors, directors, all sorts himself as a playwright in that, in that thing <laughs> as well. The only thing I couldn't quite grasp and I was not sure about reading this is, so this, this stunt that they pull where they stab the actress to try and get the attention oh. is, I couldn't tell how big this play was supposed to be. You know, how? why would the news cameras turn up just because someone got stabbed but not killed? 
other than perhaps, you know, the leaking the story of, oh, they're in a play where someone gets stabbed and then they got stabbed. Because it's like her only role is apparently she was once in Annie when yeah, she was young. Touring production of Annie, yeah. Which is not, it's not very, it's like, it's not celebrity. It's not like, I don't know who you'd say. Like Sharon Stone being on the or something. No, but I think I think it's just one of those things where, like, the media can quite often just totally invent a celebrity just out of thin air. She, enough of a Z-list celebrity, maybe. Yeah. Um, but then the stabbing just kind of makes it a point of interest, and then yeah. people people in the book were then saying, "Well, she was in Annie, you know, you know, as though these they've." got this false memory of a do you know what i mean yeah yeah just one of those things on a maybe on a, a slow news day that then just suddenly becomes uh, becomes a news item yeah by accident of, almost and yeah she's some vague claim to fame and sort of a pretty face who will look good in the photographs they're going to take and so they just think yeah fair enough yeah we'll make out she's a celebrity and and it becomes more of a story than it actually is i guess yeah, I think so. Yeah, that that was the way I kind of saw it, as it was. It were. Yeah, and the only bit of sort of real replica evidence that we get in this book because we haven't had much of it recently of like hmm. forms or anything like that. But the, we get in this the breakdown of potential yeah. profit for this play if it moves onto a big onto a big stage. Oh, do you know the other thing we haven't mentioned? Now I'm thinking about it <laughs> as well. That's baffling. <laughs> you know, wheels within wheels within wheels within wheels. <laughs> is that the play in the book is set in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a very confusing start to the book, isn't it? Because the book starts with a scene that you just totally assume is, um, well, not quite, I'm just flicking through, but yeah, the, the when when it starts that you just think, hang on a minute, I'm reading about New York here. What's <laughs> going on? But yeah, it's, it's actually a play set in New York being rehearsed in Isola. So, oh man crazy times crazy times okay i suppose we should what we other than out the play we should also mention about uh, Kling and, and sharon getting together because we've got the aftermath hanging around in the air in the ambience of the race riot that's happened uh-huh. And obviously what we've got here as well is McBain trying to work out his melting pot theory thing again and how it's changed and stuff like that. Yeah, it's. I think this is an interesting one. Because uh-uh. what McBain has basically said about this is, well, I've put this together. I've put the white cop together with the, the black uh, doctor cop character for the purposes of hope is what he says, really. Uh-huh. I mean, does it come across as hopeful? I mean, it's a bit... It's a tricky start, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there's quite an interesting scene with uh, Sharon and her mother where they go out and uh, she's, you know, kind of maybe intends to, like, tell her mother about uh, uh, Bert Kling and she says, well, his name Kling, and she spells it out and she's like, what a stupid name that is. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, she doesn't She doesn't tell her in the end, does she? Yeah, certainly not that he's white. Yeah, no, so... <laughs> Um, but yeah, and there's there's quite a few scenes um, where he, he doesn't tell uh, Steve Carella either, does he? No. Like the only person he's told is Arthur Arthur Brown for reasons which yeah I don't think he's really even clear himself, no. is he? Uh, you know the character clings, so perhaps yeah, it's just a a way of McBain like adding to the um, you know that it that it can be quite a um, 
a difficult thing to, uh, to, to to deal with at that time, certainly. Yeah. Uh, it does lead us to Arthur Brown telling Kling to take Sharon out to a place <laughs> to place to go dancing and Kling turning out to be such an awful dancer, <laughs> which is always good. Yeah, I enjoyed that detail. Yeah, so instead he takes her to a place called Top of the Hill. Not Top of the Rock, which is what I presume is the equivalent uh-huh. of. So I, they go to a posh cocktail bar on the top of the hill, which presumably is supposed to be 30 Rock, yeah. you know, the Rockefeller Centre. I assume here in, Makes sense. in in isolate terms, which is a bit more when he flashes the tin to say gets a bit of attention. Yeah, he does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now it's an interesting way of addressing the sort of the bigger picture that he was trying to do with the the race riot because it's still in the air to the point where actually he gets set up on and a brawl starts. That's a weird bit of ending, isn't it? It is really. Yeah. I, I don't know. It, it's it's funny. I, I think a, a lot of the the sort of the writing about race, to me, certainly reading it now comes off as, as pretty heavy handed. But yeah. on the other hand, I don't really know what it would have been like in in New York at that, that time, which I guess is what we're addressing here. So I don't know. Yeah. In the sort of context of the times, it probably seems quite different. But uh, yeah, it, it does. Some of those scenes like that can seem a bit sort of odd. Yeah, and I wonder perhaps if there's a little bit of, you know, this is a rich white author mm. of a certain age here writing this. So is he getting a bit out of touch with it, maybe? I don't know. It's it's hard to tell. I don't think so. I think um, maybe that, you know, maybe that was his kind of way of, you know, obviously there's he's painting a much more positive picture, isn't he? But then he's, is that his way of saying, but then you just get a bunch of idiots in a room and it kind of doesn't matter what colour they are, they just, all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Over yeah. just, over total nonsense almost. Mm. Um, so yeah, but yeah, it is a quite weird scene, especially being right at the end as well, when it's, mm. a, it's a bit of a coda, isn't it, at the end? It just kind of, right on the, uh, after the resolution of the main story, I think. And um, yeah, a bit of an odd way of, finishing the book perhaps it does also yeah so they're in a restaurant and basically a, a, an unknown character who's black comes and tells cling off uh, being sat with all these black people which then some white characters start having a go at this guy but it just ends with this little and i'm going to swear here so i might bleep it but uh we'll see if i remember <laughs> it just says coincidentally the white man who told the brother to f- off was wanted for armed robbery in the state of arizona <laughs> you know no one is no one is right and no one has got the right motives in this scenario. It's uh, it's troublemakers causing trouble for all sorts of reasons. Okay, right. Yes, it would be too hard for us to try and discuss it in a particularly linear way. This is a strange and weird book in the sequence. I think it's McBain exercising his muscle about a particular topic, which is his relationship with the theatre. He's got to carry on his sort of social commentary in terms of 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 the the you know race relations in the city, whether you agree with him or not, he'll probably he's probably right in some ways and wrong in others. Huh. There's a nice little bit where the author of the play talks about police procedurals or says no no not police procedure they don't call them that, hmm. which is what McBain thinks in in the real world. But he does mention that he's, he's written a book called Street Nocturne, and of course the next book in this series mm-hmm. is called simply Nocturne. Mm. So little forward-throwing uh, thingy there. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Let's try and get something up with <laughs> something up with this. It's it's so twisty turny, so twisty turny. And I've got a few little um, reviews from the period first. So um, yeah, I'll do those first. Then we'll we'll have our summing up because I don't think these will influence us too much anyway. We've got Marilyn Stacio writing in the New York Times. Mr. McBain has long been celebrated for his realistic precinct procedures and is dead on ear for cop talk. This deftly constructive narrative with his interconnected storylines and parallel sets of characters shows off the ingenuity of his plotting. Uh, I think that's fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, the hard-boiled novelist also reveals his antic side here in showing up the, the theatre world, essentially what she says. He's always had a, if you want to call it an antic side, hasn't he, really? He always likes to be silly about something. Yeah. Uh, who else have we got? We've got John Coleman in the Sunday Times writing, Romance is especially noteworthy for McBain's explicit and growing disenchantment with the American dream. He fairly hammers at the notion of a melting pot now abandoned in favour of ethnic rivalries, allowing Kling's difficult affair with beautiful Sharon to strike the only hopeful note. Mm-hmm. And I've got the Kirkus review from February the 15th, 1995. Yeah, it's just scanning this through. Yeah, it mentions here something we haven't mentioned at all. Teddy's little plot in this, oh, which is gosh, where, yeah. yes, you know, she gets her car driven into by someone and then ends up being written up for a misdemeanor. I felt like reaching, reaching into the book and grabbing hold of this woman who was <laughs> shaking, shaking her and, and being horrible to her. But yeah, so this Kirkus review sort of says that episode never goes anywhere and neither really does the backstage who done it. Well, it does because it's the entire thing. Yeah. Clearly the work of a gifted McBain impersonator who has the dialogue and local colour down but still needs to work on the story. Skip this one and pray the real McBain escapes from wherever in Isola the bad guys are holding him. Oof. Pretty savage. Yeah. So anyway, perhaps we should sum up our feelings on it. Um, and I will come to you then, Morgan, as you were the, a new reader to this. Um, yeah, I, I, I quite enjoyed it. It felt like quite a, a breath of fresh air after um, after the last one, which I wasn't yeah. too keen on at all. I think I, I've actually, I actually really enjoyed all the, the theatre stuff. I mean, in terms of the actual sort of mystery plot, it's probably not, not the greatest... Um, but it was really enjoyable, quite fun, quite postmodern in a way, I think, just that sort of mm. constant sort of self-referential kind of um, thing that's that's happening. And I really enjoyed that. The, the social commentary, not quite so much. I, I think your suggestion that he might be a little bit out of touch as a sort of wealthy white liberal, maybe... Um, is is reasonable, but I think overall, um, definitely back to a bit more of what I'd, I'd look for in the series with something new in terms of the the, the just the depth of that kind of multi layered kind of uh, self referential kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, I, I I really enjoyed it. I'm going to give it, I think, a score of seventy four police shields. Seventy four. Okay, well, I'll come to Steve-O and see what he's got to say. Yeah, yeah, I think I would be uh, similarly positive. I think, yeah, it felt um, it felt it felt somehow in the main, certainly with all the um, the theatre plot, quite old-fashioned. You know, it could have been a plot from out of one of his, <laughs> you know, kind of fifties, sixties ones. You know, that's true. Actually, that's a good of, point. That's a good point. It could have been any period because of how theatre works. Yeah, and it <laughs> wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't. You know, a lot. 
tied up. You know, it's all very old-fashioned motives at play and yeah. old-fashioned prejudice uh, prejudices lay, laid out really by the characters. I think you know it would score very highly in a eighty-seven bingo sense. I think uh, he'd he'd, um, he'd managed to put a lot of those. Um, um, yeah, back yeah. in really, which which was quite nice. I thought a bit less of the like the sleazy chapters that seem to have crept yeah. in yes. a bit more and more over the last ten years, and kind of sometimes seem to have a point to them, but more often than not, just seem a bit gratuitous, really. <laughs> um, so they were kind of nice by their uh, absence, really, mm. with one minor exception. But, um, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he's slightly heavy-handed with some of the stuff, but I think, you know, that's how he kind of saw it, really, isn't he? So, um, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so I think I might be slightly higher than that, maybe a, maybe a 78, something like that. Mm-hmm. Right, okay. Well, let me have a little think then. <laughs> I'll be somewhere around that mark. I, I'm trying to talk myself out of just giving it extra marks because I like doing my research and tying it all the stuff I found into it. I don't think you need to talk yourself out of that. I think no, that's, that, that's part of it, isn't it? I think that kind of plays into its its memorableness. I think it's probably one read, that, you know, that there's certainly more memorable than a lot of the other entries, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. You know, it's got a fairly quirky concept behind the whole of the, the novel, really, which um, is worthy uh, of points in itself, I think. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting, something to pick up on what you said about the sexy scenes. I mean, there's a few chapters that end with couples in bed, but it's actually done very well as a sort of device in the story right. where they sort of he slightly withholds the the evidence of who the people are yeah. until the last moment and it's not just mad gratuitous <laughs> sex scenes it's it's useful intrigue which is quite a nice thing he's sort of he's he's done what he should have done in a lot of other circum instances with those things where you don't need the full-on description stuff you want the relationship stuff that moves the the plot forward so that was good um yeah I, I did come away smiling. It, it can get a bit of a tangle when you try to work out who's who in the cast and crew of the stage play that's there. And does it fully ring true in terms of that they would let this thing carry on given everything that's happening? I, I don't know. So, I mean... I think the one weird thing about the the crime, we've not really gone into that too much, but you know the actual murder crime. Well, wasn't she... St- stabbed something like 20 odd times yeah and for somebody who you get the impression had no malice in doing the crime and it wasn't a crime of passion or anything like that that didn't ring true with 22 stab wounds 22 stab wounds is a a manic frenzied attack surely isn't it yeah, yeah, that's a, a proper psychopathic attack rather than a I'll just get this person out of the way attack. Yeah, so that that slightly seemed at odds in the person who actually committed that crime in that you 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 were led to think that they weren't mad and they weren't committing it out of any passion in them. Well, you see what I mean? Yeah, I do. I do. But yeah, what I'm going to do then is I am going to rate slightly lower at 70, please, Shields. But, you know, that's a solid 7 out of 10 for me, yeah. which in gives us a 74. lovely Kenneth total of 74. No rounding required. 
no special cogs to be pushed in to <laughs> work out the final number. 74, I think, is a very fair, yeah, very fair outcome for that. Yeah, cool. Excellent stuff. Okay, well, we will be back in the next episode to look at book 48 from 1997. Uh, there's reasons he skips a year for publishing stuff here, and I'll tell you about that next time. Uh, book 48 is Nocturne, as I've mentioned before, and we'll be back for our bonus episode um, a little while after this one comes out. You know, listen to that. It's got the usual weird stuff in it about book covers and 1995. So until we return for that, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye, as is Steve-O. Goodbye. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Fairly well. Well.